0: I went to find out, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And now I'm going to sit back and let you tell me.
1: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to The Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Sergio Uzon: Evil can only be defeated by kindness between people. My guest today, Daryl Davis, has bridged divisions with some of the most condemned people in America. He's a professional musician, author, and lecturer. And beyond his music career, he's best known for his outreach to members of hate groups, including the Ku Klux Klan. He's also the co-author of Clandestine Encounters, A Black Man's Odyssey in the Ku Klux Klan, And his work on race relations has been featured in Good Morning America, NBC, CNN, and more. Daryl, thank you for joining us today on the Elevate podcast. Thank you, Robert, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so Daryl and I, uh, we we didn't actually meet, but I saw him uh, speak at a conference I was at in in July. And and as I mentioned before the show, I thought your message just hit a chord with me. We're, We're clearly living in this time where people are divided But for some reason, they seem to believe that the answer to that is more is more division and anger, and I don't think it's working. Uh, So I'm really excited to have you share your story with us today. Well, thank you. So let's start in the beginning on a few fronts. I I know your music's been a huge part of your life. Like, what was what was growing up like for you? Where did you grow up, and and how did music kind of come into your life?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm still growing up (laughs) at age 64, (laughs) but uh, at the age of three. I began traveling the world as a child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up, you know, during my formative years as an American embassy kid, living in different countries around the world every two years. You're there for two years. Then you come home, you're here for a few months, and then you go back overseas to another country for two years. So that was definitely uh, a, a formative period of my life because my first exposure, if you will, to school was overseas. I started in 1961 at the age of 3. And so I was uh my exposure was to kindergarten overseas, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. So you had and to learn, you had to learn how to meet people
1: and connect with them. I had them. to learn how
0: to meet people, I had to learn different languages, you know, the whole thing. And my classrooms now now understand this, especially for your audience. We're talking the 1960s. I'm overseas I'm in school for the first time, and my classmates all around me are from every country in the world, all right? My classmates are from Nigeria, Japan, Russia, Czechoslovakia. Because are they all foreign services? Are they They all? They're all foreign services from their country. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, France, Sweden, Germany, you name it, all of their kids went to the same school. So that being my first exposure to school you know, denoted my baseline for what school was supposed to be. But then every two years when I would come home, I would be in either all black schools or black and white schools. And back in the 1960s, the diversity in our school systems was not what it is today or what I had overseas. So when I was overseas, I was literally living about 10 years ahead of my time because that multicultural environment had yet to come here. So even though, um, you know, desegregation was passed by the uh, Supreme Court in 1954, four years before I was born, schools did not integrate overnight. It took years and years. So uh, one time when I came home, it was uh, 1968. I was age 10 and I was in fourth grade and I was one of two black kids in the entire school. There was a little girl in second grade. Where where was this? This was in a town called Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Yeah. So consequently, all of my friends, you know, were, you know, my peers, fourth and fifth graders. And they all, of course, were white. I'm the only black guy in the the whole school, other than the little girl in in second grade. So some of my friends, uh, male friends, invited me to join the Cub Scouts 1968. I joined the the, uh, Cub Scouts, and we had a parade from uh, Lexington to Concord, right next door to Belmont, to commemorate the ride of uh, Paul Revere, along with some other organizations. But I was the only uh, black scout in this parade. And everything was fine. You know, we're marching, uh, streets are blocked off, people are cheering and waving, all white people. And, you know, yelling the British are coming and all that kind of thing. Until we got to a certain point in this parade route, when suddenly I was being pelted with uh, Projectiles, bottles, soda pop cans, just small debris from the street by a small group of maybe four or five people off to my right on the sidewalk. I remember there being a couple of kids, perhaps a year or two older than me, and a couple of adults who were doing this. And because I had no precedent for this, my first thought was, oh, you know, these people over here, you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. I didn't realize that I was the only scout getting hit. Until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader, all came running back into the line and huddled over me with their bodies, and you know, quickly escorted me out of this danger. I kept asking, them, well, "Why? Why are they hitting me? Why? Why are they doing this?" You know, I didn't do anything, and um, they, you know, all they would do is kind of shush me and rush me along, tell me to keep moving. You know, everything would be okay. Uh, they never answered my question. So at the end of the parade, you know, of course, I went home, and my parents were cleaning me up and putting band-aids on me and asking me, you know, how did you trip and fall down and get all scraped up? And I told them that, you know, that wasn't what happened. I told them exactly what happened. And my parents, for the first time in my life, explained to me what racism was. Now, I know a lot of people may not believe this, but it's true. At the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. That word was not in my sphere. I was around people from all over the world, you know, and nobody exhibited this kind of behavior, certainly not over skin color. And, um, you know, I didn't believe my parents, you know, they they were pulling my leg, you know, they weren't telling me the truth. And furthermore, to prove my point and defend my point, the people who were doing this to me did not look any different to me than my friends right there at Payson Park Elementary School. In uh, in Belmont, or for that matter, my friends overseas—whether they, they were my fellow Americans from the embassy, or my little Swiss, or Danish, or Swedish, or Finnish uh, friends—you know. So how could my parents be right? Well, I didn't believe them. And about a month and a half, maybe two months later, that same year, 1968, on April 4th, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I remember it very, very well. Every major city in this country, nearby Boston. My hometown, Chicago, Illinois, where I am right now, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, you name it, they all burned to the ground with violence and destruction, all in the name of this new word that I had learned a couple months back called racism. So now I understood that this phenomenon existed, but I did not understand why. Why are people racist? Why do people not like one another because of the color of their skin? So at that age, I formed a question in my mind at age 10, which was, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. And 54 years later, I'm looking for the answer to that question.
1: After that experience or that time, did you then flip back to being abroad? I mean, it must have just been like, yeah. like as you said, like flipping
0: decades like <laughs> on a switch when one place to another. Exactly. It was like the time machine, man. You know, you mean you saw the movie Back to the Future? You know, something like that. You know, or you know, whatever the time machine. Um, Yeah, because you know, we were there, and then that fall, right before school starts, we went back overseas to another country, and I was around what I called normalcy. Today, you would call that you know a multicultural environment, but back in 1968, the term multicultural didn't even exist. I remember when it came out; it was multi hyphen cultural that was all one word but to me that was my norm that was my my environment and nobody you know threw things at you know that kind of stuff i guess everyone was
1: different in that environment right
0: everyone was different and we all got along now you know we played together went to school together worked together had slumber parties together you know it was the way life was supposed to be do you think because those parents all
1: chose to be in the foreign service and they also had that exposure that they were just The kids were more predispositioned to, you know, being open to other (laughs) cultures and people or, uh, you know, obviously there had to be something going on with the parents of who are throwing, you know, stuff at you. But this, you know, this is a really unique combination of people,
0: Um, you know, and, and, you know, when people say around, you know, here in our country, you know, it just can't work. You know, know, the races just cannot coexist together. It just does not work. Yeah. You know, they're full of crap. Because I've seen it work. I've yeah. been where it's worked. Okay, and you know, travel. Let, let me give you my my very favorite quote of all time. Is this the Mark it's, Twain one, it's the Mark Twain? Yeah, quote. it's a great quote. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> said, "Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired." By vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. That is so true. Racism, bigotry, these are learned behaviors. And what can be learned can be unlearned. And so what, what I was experiencing was a learned behavior. Had those kids and adults done the travel that I had done, would they be doing this today or back then? No, they probably would not. Now that that does not mean, of course, that that uh that. Everybody who has not traveled behaves that way. Certainly not. <laughs> yeah. okay? Some people, you know, are, are smarter than that. These are people who are basically very ignorant. And ignorance can be cured. Ignorance is cured with education. They're, but however, you have people who are ignorant. You have people who are stupid. Unfortunately, stupidity cannot be uh, cured.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role. to post your job for free, terms and conditions apply. i, I Yeah, I loved your. I, I loved this. Can you? Will you highlight what the difference between ignorant and stupid? Because I, I loved your definition
0: of those. <laughs> okay. Well, this is my definition. Yes, uh, it's shared by some, but perhaps <laughs> not by others. Okay. Some people think that the terms ignorance and stupidity are synonymous. Me, I don't. And here's how I would define them: an ignorant person is someone. Who makes a wrong decision or a bad choice because he or she does not have the facts or proper information to make the correct decision or good choice? You give that person the proper information, the facts, then you have alleviated their ignorance and they can make a good decision. A stupid person is someone who has the facts and still makes a bad choice. So, for example, if I have a room and I paint the walls in the room, and I do not post any signs that say wet paint stay off the walls, anyone entering that room is ignorant. Now, I don't use the term ignorant in the derogatory sense, but in the sense of being unaware.
1: Right. I was going to say, because they almost sound backwards the way they're used in society. So it's an injury. yeah.
0: Well, it it can be applied either way, right? Yeah. Um, So I'm not being derogatory. I'm saying unaware. We all are ignorant to certain things. Right. All right. I'm ignorant when it comes to car repair. That's why I take my car to a mechanic. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, um, uh, they're ignorant when they walk into the room as to the fact that these walls are wet. You know, there's no indication. And someone might go and lean up against the wall, and now he has paint on his clothes. I can alleviate that ignorance by providing the facts, providing the proper information. I can put up signs that say, wet paint, stay off the walls. I can stand in the doorway and tell each and every person entering that doorway, hey, folks, I just painted these walls 10 minutes ago. They're still wet. Gather around the center of the room. Stay away from the walls. So now everybody has the proper information, but still one of those people goes and leans on the wall and now he wants to know, why is there paint pain on his clothes? It's because he's stupid. So we can cure ignorance, but we cannot cure stupidity. If you give somebody the proper information, the education, and they don't use it, nothing you can do. The cure for ignorance is education and exposure, and that is where we need to focus our energy, our time, our efforts, and our money, providing better education and exposure, especially to young people.
1: So, going back to young into your timeline, so you shift, so you, you go back for your next tour abroad. So now you come back, where well, you're 13 or 14 at that point, right? Where, where do you move right. then? Is it a different different place every time?
0: Yeah, we were here uh, in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., and then lo and behold, I have another uh, racial experience, if you will. Uh, fifteen years old, and I'm in the tenth uh, grade, and um, we had a class called the P.O.T.C., which stood for Problems of the 20th Century. We had a fantastic teacher. This class was for seniors, and but I was taking it as a sophomore in tenth grade, and he would bring in you know controversial people to uh, to address you know the classes, the P.O.T.C. classes, and on this day in 1974. He brought in the head of the American Nazi Party. Now, you could never get away with that today. But, you know, (laughs) we're talking 1970s. There's some argument of whether whether, right today or whether you should have
1: listened to that person and then argue them versus not have them. But that's a different different discussion. But, yeah, that must have been. I I am.
0: When when I tell people that, they are appalled. I mean, unless they're older people. Yeah. Remember the 70s. Right. They are appalled. I said, you know what, that was one of the best things that ever happened because I I could see the stupidity in this world right there in my face, standing less than 10 feet from me. So what did did this person say? Uh, This person stood up at the, uh, his name was Matt Cole. And let me just give you a little bit of background in the American Nazi Party. The American Nazi Party was formed by a fellow named George Lincoln Rockwell. And uh, George Lincoln Rockwell was a big proponent of Adolf Hitler. And he formed the American Nazi Party. He was always showing up at uh, uh, marches by Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King and always confronting him and all that kind of stuff. And George Lincoln Rockwell, uh, his right-hand guy was a guy named Matt Cole, his right-hand lieutenant. And um, Rockwell was murdered by one of his own American Nazi members. Uh, They got into an argument and the guy shot him. Uh, Ironically, later on, I would have one of uh, Rockwell's daughters as a teacher, uh, but she had long ago disowned her father and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, so when um, Rockwell was murdered, Matt Cole, his right-hand guy, took over and became the head of the party. So it was on that day that uh, Matt uh, Matt Cole came to my school, and he stood up there with his right-hand lieutenant, uh, espousing the views of white supremacy, and he pointed at me and pointed at one of my other Black classmates and said, we're going to ship you back to Africa. And then he made a sweeping motion with his index finger, like this, across the room, and said, "All you Jews out there, you're going back to Israel." And I just sat there looking at this fool, like, you know, what are you talking about? I didn't, I didn't say anything, but that was my look on my face. What did the teacher say? Teacher just stood there and you know listened to him. And, you know, we were there to, to yeah. listen to him. Huh. And um, you know, he made that comment. Well, one of my classmates said, "Well, what happens if if they don't want to go?" And Mackle said they have no choice. If they do not um, leave voluntarily, they will be exterminated in the upcoming race war. That was the first time I heard the term race war. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this man talking about? This is not making any sense. It was not, you know, computer. Yeah. And um, later on that day, I was standing by my locker, I was the only one in the hallway. And Matt Cole and his right-hand guy were leaving. And they saw me standing there, and they stopped just a few feet from me and looked at me. They didn't say anything to me. just looked at me, and they sneered at me. And then they began laughing and went on down the hall and out the, uh, out the uh, school to, to leave. You know, they were there all day because we have, like, I don't know, three or four POTC classes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, that prompted me to go out and purchase or get a hold of everything I could documents uh books magazines on uh black supremacy on white supremacy on anti-semitism racism the ku klux klan the nazis in germany the neo-nazis over here to learn where does that ideology come from because i really hadn't thought that much about you know the incident that happened to me when i was 10 i'm not you know it's now five years later but you still you have know. that question sitting oh, with yeah, you i still have that right? question yeah. i, still, I still have that question but this prompted me to, to really do more research and dig into it, right? Uh, you know, this guy belongs to an organization that promotes Adolf Hitler and his ideology. I mean, you know, having kids uh, and, and a couple of adults throw things at you, you know, it's just you know, the racist next door. But somebody who joins an organization that promotes this kind of thing and, and says, if you don't leave voluntarily your own country, you're going to be exterminated. I need to find out more about this. So, you know, that pushed me even further into that, into that realm. And so um, I have a vast library on that stuff. And um, I, I graduated high school two years later, 12th grade, and I went to college. I graduated college four years later uh, with my degree in music, became a professional musician. But, but the whole time, while music was my profession, studying race relations became my obsession. And uh, eight years after I had um, uh, encountered Matt Cole in my classroom, I encountered him again. I sought him out and I encountered him again and I confronted him and uh, he remembered me. He talked to me and he explained that um, he felt that the only way the races could get along was to be separate and that each race has to understand that they must remain pure. They cannot miscegenate, and he claimed that his race was committing genocide through miscegenation with what he called mud races. He said that his race was becoming a mongrel race. So anyone who was non-Aryan—that's what he called the white race—Aryans. Right. Uh, anyone who was non-Aryan could not miscegenate with an Aryan, and therefore it was making a, it was making his race a mongrel race. So, quick
1: question on that: so did did
0: I would assume
1: that he believed there was a hierarchy, not that it was necessarily a separate but equal, right?
0: Oh, right. Of course. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the term white supremacist. <laughs> yes, okay. Because in, in you're describing that, you made it sound like his central thesis was that they, they shouldn't be mixed. But I, yes, okay, right. got it.
0: Now, now he says, now when, when they say separate but equal, understand, they're talking equal in terms of materialistic. Yeah, not in terms of intelligence. They want you to have your own neighborhood, and your rights. own your yeah. own school, your own swimming pool, your own restaurants, you know, that kind of thing. And and they have theirs. So that's separate but equal in their mind. But in terms of IQ and and eugenics and all that kind of stuff, right. no. They they feel they are superior. So you started a a
1: dialogue with him on this. So what yeah. and so what how did that <laughs> resolve
0: or not resolve after that discussion? Well, I mean, he was very friendly, um, cordial, and, uh, and, you know, explained all this stuff to me. Not that I was buying it, but I wasn't there to beat him up. I was there to learn from him, to, to figure out how, how does somebody arrive at this stupidity? And um, so, you know, I learned that from him. And then I would see him again a third time. And this time, uh, he was surrounded by uh, he and his Nazis were surrounded by police. He was having a rally, a public rally. And uh, there were about 50 of them that had come from all over the country. Uh, He was having his national recruitment rally for the American Nazi Party in Washington, D.C. Now, What what year is this? 19, I want to say 1982. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, get this. Tens of thousands of people converged on this rally from all over Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Richmond, Virginia, and of course people right here in the D.C. Maryland area, Northern Virginia area, to protest and to attack these, uh, these Nazis. Why? So, they, of course, they had police protection. Uh, why do they have police protection? Because they are guaranteed the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of assembly, like we all are within our Constitution. So if you take that right away from them, it can be taken away from you as well. So that kind of thing must be protected. Okay? It doesn't have to be believed, but right. it must be protected. Okay, so of course, a big riot broke out. The police were not letting the protesters. The protesters came with baseball bats, bricks and chains and all kinds yeah. of stuff. And so a full-blown riot broke out. And I was there. I was there right in the middle of it watching it. And uh, police cars got overturned, windows got busted out. Was this in uh, D.C.? Yeah. yeah. And our uh, buildings got set on fire and all that kind of thing. So um, later that uh, evening, I'm watching the news. Now, back then, uh, you didn't have um, cable TV. It was only ABC, NBC, and CBS. It's a good thing. <laughs> no 24-hour news. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there is Matt Cole sitting in the studio of the local uh, NBC affiliate here in D.C., and uh, being interviewed by the news anchor. And they're running the footage of the riot that day. And he says, you see, you see, you see, it's the blacks and the Jews who are destroying this country. They're denying us our right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. It's the blacks and the Jews. This country is run by ZOG. ZOG is a white supremacist acronym, Z-O-G, for Zionist Occupied Government everything is the jews fault okay blacks are the pawns of the jews the jews run the media they run the banks they do this everything is their fault and that you know so that's his his uh, thing and it was then that i realized because i was trying to figure out why is he having his american nazi party recruitment rally in washington dc that doesn't make any sense washington dc is two-thirds black yeah. and there are no black people there in dc who want to join the american nazi party And certainly no Jews in D.C. or anywhere that want to join the American Nazi Party. So why D.C.? It was then that I realized why he did it, because he knew this was going to happen. And he would have official, meaning NBC, ABC, CBS, footage of what was taking place. And he points out, you see, you know, it's not the Nazis who are overturning police cars and setting fires. It's the blacks and the Jews. So he takes that footage goes out to the Pacific Northwest and shows it to people out there and say, so you see what's going on in our nation's capital? You need to come join us. You know, we need to take mm-hmm. our country back. The blacks and the Jews are destroying this country. And he gains recruitment out of that. Yeah. That, I mean, again, I hate to say it's smart. It's not the right it is word, smart. but it's well, calculating. No, it's, yeah. it's calculated. It's smart in that regard. And I've seen that kind of thing repeated with the Klan and other, uh, you know, hate groups. Well, I think we saw a little bit of it in, in the last couple of years, too, in some of these we saw it politically, throughout, too. Yeah. We saw it throughout the previous four years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, goading people into,
0: into action. Well, hey,
1: Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. There's so many, so many questions I have on where to go from that. So, so after that experience, so you kind of get into this dual career of, this is not a usual combination of, you know, you're an extraordinary musician. I mean, you've played with drifters, Chuck Berry, some other people, and then you started this second thing. When when did you start getting involved with the KKK directly? Um, 1983.
0: Okay. So that's right after this. So, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) how did that start? It actually started on a fluke. I was, um, well, I mean, I had a negative experience with one of them that same year, uh, but my first positive one was, uh, I was playing a gig in a bar in a town called Frederick, Maryland. Sure. And uh, Frederick is only about an hour and 20 minutes outside of D.C. I had joined a country music band, and I was the only black guy in the band, and usually the only black guy where we played. And they were they were popular around the maryland area and they had played this place before it was called the silver dollar lounge silver dollar lounge had a reputation of being an all-white lounge you know there were no signs saying you know uh whites only no blacks allowed nothing like that nothing nothing overt uh but you knew if you were black you were not welcome there and when you go somewhere where alcohol is being served and you're not welcome (laughs) it's not a good combination sometimes so here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge doing this gig, my first time there. And uh, the band had been there before. We finished our first set.
1: And, and they, didn't, they,
0: they didn't warn you about that, Or did they Like, you know? No, no I, I knew about it. You knew? I knew. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm with the band, you know, and, you know, they're not going to let anything happen to me. And I'm not afraid of people in general. So anyway, um, we finished the first set, taking a break. I'm, I'm following the band over to where they're going to sit. And I felt somebody come up from behind and put their arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in here, right? So I'm, like, trying to see who's touching me. And it was a white guy, and he was considerably older than me. And uh, he smiling and so on and so on. He praised my piano playing and said that uh, this was the first time he ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I, I did not find that to be offensive. I just figured, you know, this guy doesn't get out much or something. And... um I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee learned how to play? And he says, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, he got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll and rockabilly uh, evolved. He said, oh, no, 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 I never heard no black man play like that, except for you. You um, You know, Jerry Lee invented that. And I said, no. And I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee. I know him personally. He's told me himself, you know, where his influences came from. Well, he didn't believe that either. But he was so fascinated with me that he wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. I don't drink alcohol, but I went back there and I had a cranberry juice. And he took his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm, I'm totally curious because obviously his experience, life experience, was far different than my life experience. Yeah, Because I sat down with people from all over the world. And so, innocently, I asked him, I said, why? And um, he didn't answer me. I looked down at the tabletop, and I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me. because I'm I'm mystified, genuinely mystified. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I started laughing at him. (laughs) I I was genuinely laughing because I didn't believe him. Because, you know, remember, I have a vast library. books on the Ku Klux Klan. And I've read them all. And none of them talk about how a Klansman will come up and embrace a black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink and praise his talent. It doesn't work that way. So this guy is BSing me. While I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and handed me his Klan membership card. I recognize the Klan emblem on it, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of that cross. And I realized, oh, my goodness, you know, this thing is for real. So it wasn't funny anymore, right? So I stopped laughing, and I give him back the card. But, you know, we talk about the plan and some other things. The guy was very friendly and very taken by me for some reason. And he gave me his number and wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this lounge so he could bring his friends to see, as he put it, the black guy who plays piano like Jerry Lee. His clan friends? His clan friends, yeah. <laughs> Seems like a bad idea, but yeah, yeah okay. Uh, well, actually, it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, was, I, I see things a little differently. <laughs> no, I And uh, so, you know, I would call him and he would come. He would bring clansmen and clanswomen. And of course, you know, they didn't come in robes and hoods. Yeah. I would see that later. You know, they come in regular clothing and they would gather around near the stage and watch me play. And then they'd get out on the floor and dance. And on the bricks, you know, I'd make my table say, hello, thank you for coming. Uh, most of them would remain there at the table because they were curious about me. But there were a couple of them. Every time I walked that way towards the table, they'd get up and move to the other side of the room. Mm. So the message was, you know, we don't want to shake your hand. We don't want to talk to you. We just want to look at you, but, Yeah, which was fine. So this went on until the end of that year. And at which time um, I quit that band and I went back to playing rock and roll and whatever else. And I lost track of the guy. I had no reason to stay in touch with the clan. So, um, you know, several years later, it dawned on me, Daryl, you know, you blew it. You know, the answer to your question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me and you don't even know me? It fell right into your lap. And you didn't even realize it. Who, because, you know, none of my books answered that question. They all talked about it, but they didn't answer the question. And when I would ask people, you know, why are people like this? They was, oh, Daryl, some people are just like that. You know, that's just the way it is. Well, that's not an answer. You know, I'm, I'm looking for the why. So I realized the answer fell right into my lap. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has a history of hating people, of practicing hating people that uh, don't look like them and who don't believe as they believe? Who, who would go out and practice that In a group, you know, Matt Cole would, this guy would. So, um, you know, I figured I better get in contact with that guy. And uh, I'm going to write a book because all of my books on the KKK were written by uh, white authors, except for two by black authors, but not interviewing the KKK, talking about how they escaped the lynching by the KKK. So that's what led to that. I got a hold of the guy. And through him, you know, I would I would meet other Klan people. Uh, he didn't want me to reveal to the other people where I got their information, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I ended up, you know, traveling around up north, down south, Midwest, West, and interviewing various Klan leaders and groups members. And I wrote that book. And what was
1: the well, to, What was the biggest theme that you learned, or sort of how did it inform your whole thinking you've been reading these books for years what was what was different in person than you had found in the literature in terms of you okay
0: know. yeah it, it was a a very good experience for the most part and i'm still doing it yeah because my uh beliefs changed as did theirs not everybody i met you know changed their beliefs okay but a lot of them did and continued to do so my belief was this as kids, you and I and anybody you know probably learned as young kids that a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. They are who they are, and, that, and that's what they look like, and that's not going to change. So with that in mind as a foundation, why would anybody think, why would I think, that a clansman or clanswoman would change their robe and hood? That's who they are, just like the tiger with the stripes and the uh, leopard with the spots. So I never went into these meetings with these people to interview them with the thought of converting them. The media has it all wrong. You know, a lot of times when you Google my name in the media, it will say something to the effect of black musician converts X number of white supremacists. You actually
1: went to to listen to them, right? I mean, that was really the have a discussion, understand why they
0: thought. I went to find out how can you hate me when you don't even know me. And now I'm going to sit back and let you tell me. Okay, because here's here's one thing that I learned in my travels. I've been to 61 countries on six continents Mm. between traveling with my parents as a kid and now as a musician, whether I'm performing over there or speaking. I've played in all 50 states. So I've been exposed to a lot of different people. And one thing that I've learned is this. No matter how far I go from our country. Whether it's right next door to Canada or Mexico or to the other side of the planet. Everybody I encounter, no matter how different they may be, they don't look like me, they don't speak my language, they don't worship as I do or what have you. All of them, they all want these five core values in their lives, all of us. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We all want to be treated fairly and truthfully. We all want to be heard, and we all want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we learn to apply those five core values or any of those values when we encounter an adversarial situation or we find ourselves in a society or culture in which we're uncomfortable or unfamiliar, I can guarantee our navigation will be much more positive and much more smooth And this doesn't just apply to race relations. It applies to any kind of controversial thing, you know, where you're on one side, somebody else is on the other. It could be abortion. It could be the the last presidential election. It could be the upcoming presidential election. Global warming, uh, nuclear weapons, you name it. These are hot topics. So you're on one side, somebody else is on the other. Apply those values and the conversation can be held and we can learn from one another. We may not end up agreeing, but at least it's civil. Right. You might may find more points
1: of, of agreement or empathy exactly. than you may realize. Exactly.
0: Right? And at least we can understand why they believe that way, and they can understand why we believe this way. So right. I was there to, to ask the question: how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And now I'm gonna sit back and let you unload. And here's what happens. I'll give you a an example, a true example. So Uh, Well, Mr. Davis, uh, you know, you you have to understand, you know, you know, black people are prone to crime. And that is evidenced by the fact that there are more black people in prison than white people. So this guy is sitting right across from me. Yeah. Right. Telling me this is Klan leader. And basically he's calling me a criminal. And now what he is saying is true, that that there are more black people in prison than white people. The uh, statistics and data show that. But that is not the reason that we're prone to you know we're not prone to crime because of that. Okay, so he's seeing the data. The data supports what he's saying, but that's not the reason. He's not looking at the fact that sometimes our court system is imbalanced and send black people to prison more often than whites who committed the same crime. All right. But I'm not interrupting him. I'm sitting back listening because people want to be heard, right? So then he goes on to say that um, black people are inherently lazy. We don't want to work. Uh, We want to scam the government welfare system. We always have our hand out for a freebie, and all that kind of stuff. So now he's calling me lazy. I'm just sitting back listening, and then he tells me that uh, black people are, and this is another Nazi thing also, that black people are born with a smaller brain than white people, and the the uh, larger the brain, the more capacity for intelligence. The smaller the brain, the lower the IQ. And he says that this is evidence by SAT scores. He says that year after year, black kids consistently score lower on the SATs than white kids. And that is absolutely correct. The uh, statistics and data show that. So he takes that and that enforces his belief that we are already inferior because we have small brains. He does not bother to research uh, why that data shows that. Okay. So I'm listening to this. Now he's calling me stupid and unintelligent. But I'm I'm listening. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, where do most black kids go to school? Uh, In the inner city. Inner city schools, fact, are not as good as the schools in the suburbs. The facilities, the, the equipment, the textbooks, the teaching is not up to the standards of suburban schools. And I will guarantee black kids who go to school in the suburbs. Can score just as high, if not higher, on the SATs than white kids. White kids who go to school in the inner city can score just as low, if not lower, than some of the black kids. It has absolutely nothing to do with the color of the student's skin, but has everything to do with the uh, school system in which that child is enrolled. And so after he's all done, I lay that out for him about the prison. About and, the did, and did he students. listen? In your experience, did if, them, yes. if You listened to them, then they were they will willing to, to sit
1: down and listen to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and I also pointed out something else to him uh, that he knew, but he didn't bring up, <laughs> which was this: the kids that score the highest on the SATs are Chinese kids, Asian kids. Okay. Now, is that because they have a bigger brain than white people? Or do they have a better study ethic than all of us? Okay, so I put that out there to him. So if anybody should be a supremacist, maybe it should be them, huh? So now I, I just put that out there because he knows that's true. because he reads the same data, yeah, right? But I don't argue with it. I just put it out there, right? And so now here's what happens. He goes home. He, he doesn't change his mind right then and there, but he goes home and he mulls over What had transpired during the day, number one, he just had a conversation, a three-hour conversation with a black man, and they didn't come to blows. They agreed on some things, they may have disagreed on other things, but they didn't fight. Maybe they got a little loud every now and then, but they didn't come to blows. And then he thinks, you know, what that black Daryl guy said, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said is true. Oh, but he's black. So now they're having a cognitive dissonance. Dissonance, yeah. Discussion with yeah. themselves. Yeah, And, and they <laughs> cost in turn and it, it exhausts them. You know, they don't know how to handle it. Do I disregard his skin color and believe this to be true because I know it's true what he said and change my ideological direction? Or do I consider his skin color and continue uh, believing a lie just because he's black? And that's a struggle for them, especially if they were a leader, because they, they know that they're wrong. And this black guy who is inferior to them was right. So how can that be? And so they finally come to the conclusion, most of them, some of them don't change, but most of them do. Because they're they're tired of this dissonance riding around in their head. And so now they're faced with the dilemma of telling their members, if they were a leader, hey, folks, I was wrong. I'm stepping down. That's a tough road to hoe.
1: And how, I mean... How many of these cases was that the outcome and or what was the gestational period (laughs) around these thoughts and changing their opinions? And
0: Well, you know, um, there is no set time. Yeah. Uh, It could be months. It could be weeks. It could be years. I've seen it all. I've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, Some people, uh, it's a matter, depending upon what they have invested in this. I don't necessarily mean in terms of money. But in terms of their of their belief, you know their their life, because you know people join the clan for different or or these groups for different reasons. Like for example, my great great grandfather was in the clan. My grandfather was in the clan. My daddy was in the clan. I'm business. in the clan. Family yeah. business. And so, you know, if it's a family tradition passed <laughs> down, the grip on you is a lot tighter. Did you find though
1: that some of the people, the third or fourth generation, they? they i mean maybe even as their education became you know better they they knew this stuff not to be
0: true but they didn't right. want to upset the you know right they didn't want to rock the family yeah, boat you right. know yeah uh some do break the cycle some do break the cycle but a lot of times you know it's it's a family value and they just you know hold hold to it yeah so there's that and then there are other reasons like for example you know you move into a a town that might be a uh, hotbed for the Klan. You know, they run everything. You know, they're they're in the local government and the local politics here and there. So, you know, if you want to do business in that town, you have to assimilate. You know, you join the local chamber of commerce, the local country club, the local KKK. You know, otherwise, you know, they, they shun you and, you know, you don't, you fail in, in whatever it is you're trying to do there. It's like a gang, you know, you affiliate. And another reason is, they will show up in a depressed town. Let me give you an example. Happens all the time. Uh, let's say a coal mining town yeah. where people uh, despair, the, right. despair. Okay. Yeah. And these people who work in these coal mines, that's all they know. They, they go to the coal mine right after high school. Their grandfather did it. Their daddy did it. They do it. Their kids are going to do it. All right. And these are happy people. These are not racist people. They're making good money. They're paying their bills. They're, they're supporting mm-hmm. their family. Uh, They don't have a racist bone in them, you know, and they've been there for generations. And then one day, the uh, the bosses at the uh, company decide, you know what? We can lay off the now most of these coal miners are, are white, you know. We can lay off these workers because they're a bunch of uh, immigrants that just came in town. Whether they're legal or illegal doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, we can hire them and pay them this much money. You know, we you know we're already paying our guys this much money. So we'll pay them this much money because this much money is a lot of money back in their country. So we we'll hire them. So they lay off these uh, these white workers and they hire these people who just came over. And uh, now these people are out of work. They can't get any other job. All they know is mining coal. Right. And That's the only employment in that town. Yeah. That's the only employment. Plus, plus, even if there was employment, they're not qualified for it. All right. So now the bank is knocking on the door for the mortgage. You know, they're going to foreclose on on their house or whatever. The Klan will show up in a town like that and hold a rally and say, you know, the blacks have the NAACP. The Jews have the ADL. Nobody stands up for the white man but the Ku Klux Klan. You know, your job is not gone. You're still there. But some racial epithet has your job. Um, You can't put food on on your family's table. You can't put clothes on your kids back because that so-and-so has your job. Come join us. We will get your job back for you. So these people who are, as you put it, in despair, who ne- who never were racist, they're, they're like listening to this and thinking, you know, they got a point. My job's not gone, but I'm gone, and I can't afford anything. What do I have to lose? Give me an application. So they joined that way. So depending upon you know how you come into the clan it determines how strong you you are attached. People like that may be a little easier to pull out as opposed to somebody whose family has been in the plan for generations and generations, but they all can change. And uh, there will be those who will go to their grave, though, being hateful, violent, and racist and never change. I don't give up on those people. I simply move them down on my list of priorities because I've seen some of them bounce back and do change, but I know some will die being that way. So I don't waste my time a whole lot of time with them. I just move them down and work with the ones you know that I have some kind of rapport with. And then when I get down to those, I spend more time with the with the ones who are more negative. So I mean, no no one keeps a,
1: a record of this. And and again, not not to misconstrue as you said the media, but I mean, you have probably had more Klansmen leaders you know turn over and and you showed their hoods to you and and give up and sort of to you. I mean, anyone else, like, can you talk through, like, how many, of the, how many people have, like, you know, leaders have, you know, come to you, given it up, and, and in a lot of cases, given you their hood, which is a pretty interesting,
0: symbolic gesture? A lot of them, I would say, because I've been doing this 40 years, uh, I would say, indirectly, over 200, directly, I'd say between 60 and 70. Wow. You, you still have a bunch of these, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got over 50. Probably over 60 now. And guess what? Truth. I even get some in the mail from people I don't even know. Sometimes somebody will email me and and say, you know, I saw you on such and such podcast. I saw your TED Talk. I saw this. Or I heard you speak somewhere. And I really thought about this. And, you know, what you said made a lot of sense. You know, I'm I'm done now. I'm done with this stuff. Uh, Would you like my my robe? Because, you know, they, they know I have a collection of them. They, e- they find my email on the website, on my website, and they email me. And I say, yeah, and we talk, we have a conversation. It's incredible. The next thing I know, they send me a package, and there it is. It's a unique collection. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Indeed it is. But I also want to tell you, um, you know, what is going on in the world today? I right, so It's just about where I was to turn to, so you're, you're leading us there. Okay, this is, this is uh, very, very important uh, for people to understand. Because, you know, we go about our daily lives and, you know, yeah, we we had a pandemic and, you know, things happen, so on and so on. But let's take a look at what's going on that is really triggering a lot of these people where we're seeing an uptick in uh, lone wolves and mass shootings and this kind of stuff by some of these people. Let's understand the history of this country. This country was built on a two-tier society white supremacy at the top, and slavery at the bottom. And as we progress through the decades, we progress like this. You know, perhaps like this, but never like this. Okay? Yeah. I'm 64, as I mentioned earlier. When I was a child, the black population here in our country was 12%. Native Americans, 1%. Uh, Latino, Hispanic people, right around 2%. Asian people right around 3%. Whites 86-87%. Today the de- the uh, census is taken every 10 years. Today white people make up 59% of the population. Okay? Non-white people right now make up 40% of the population. In 1950 only 10% of this population were non-white. So this is happening. It is pre- uh, for example, today Black people are still right around 12%, 12 12.9, so they say 13%, okay? Native Americans remain at 1%. They've never grown. Asians have almost doubled from almost 3% to almost 6%. Hispanic Latino people have more than quadrupled. They're at 17 point something percent. So if you take 12% Black and 17% uh, Latino, that right there by itself is 29% non-white. You know, let alone anybody else. That's almost a third of the population. So this is happening. It is well predicted. And I've known this. Matt Cole from the American Nazi Party told me this back in 1982 when I confronted him the said that I met him, that 2042 would be the year, if it's not stopped, that this country would be 50-50. And he's right. Right. This was his fear. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is all their fears, okay? Yeah. Do, do you remember, I don't know if you're old enough, but do you remember Y2K? Yes. Okay. <laughs> people were like freaking out, you know, yeah. you know, that uh computers were gonna shut yeah, down stock
1: and food and yeah. Right. It, and, it was and, a it was
0: a boon for consulting firms. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and people were taking their money out of the bank because yeah. the banks were gonna lose their money, computers wouldn't, you know, recalculate yeah. the dates and stuff. People were burying money in their backyard. I mean, it was crazy. Well, 2042 is the white supremacist Y2K. They mm-hmm. think it's the end of the world when this happens. All right. So they want to stop this. You know, when you have been on the throne of power in this country for 400 years, it's hard to get off. Yeah. You know, and I mean, look, look at our last president. He was only on the throne for four years and he thinks he's still there. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's hard to give up power. So, you know, when I first started this, there was the Klan. There were white power skinheads and neo-Nazis. That was pretty much it. Today, you got the Klan, white power skinheads, neo-Nazis, three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, this group, that group, on and on and on. And they're all saying, come join us, come join us, and we're going to take back our country. We're going to send those people back to where they belong. And we're going to make America great again, on and on and on. You know, it's that fear of this. And um, when people go and join these groups out of fear of being erased, because what they tell me in person is, Daryl. I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation, right? So when they run and join these groups out of fear of their tribe being erased and the group fails to take back the country or send those people back to where they belong, some of them get frustrated and they say, you know what, if the Klan can't do it or or the three percenters can't do it, I'll do it myself and they walk into a black church, boom, 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 or into a synagogue, boom, boom, boom. The Walmart in El Paso, boom, boom, boom. You know, the Buffalo grocery store, and shoot-up people. These are called lone wolves, right? Now, we have intelligence agencies in this country that have operatives who fit the profile of some of the members of these groups, and they can join these groups undercover, gather intelligence, and squash some of these plots. However. How can you infiltrate a lone wolf? It's only one person. You can't do it. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves because they're becoming unhinged. And every time one of these lone wolves gets shot and killed or arrested and law enforcement you know, goes and searches their property, what do they find? They find a cache of automatic weapons that are being stockpiled for what? The race war. The race war that Matt Cole was telling me about, they called it Rahowa, R-A-H-O-W-A, Rahowa, which is an acronym for Racial Holy War, the first two letters of each word. So that's what they're looking for. And that's why they're they're becoming unhinged. And this is why it is crucial that this kind of thing be addressed now. It's in your face. It's always been here, but now it's in your face.
1: And when you say I I'm curious, based on, on your history and type of dialogue, do you think that discussing that fear more openly, e- even if irrationally, that is part of and being willing to acknowledge
0: that they have that fear would yeah. help? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, when you don't address something openly and let people know what's going on and be able to talk about it, that fear just boils and boils and right. boils. And then, you know, it's like a pressure cooker. If you don't release that valve, what's going to happen? It turns into a bomb and it it explodes. Yeah. We saw that in Charlottesville.
1: Yeah, I think people are always worried about their heritage, right? R- right or wrong, it, it, the, you know, lo- losing that in some way. I'm curious because you said it before when you were talking about whether you just think some of the things that we're seeing today are, are are counterproductive, particularly on on campuses. You know, you were talking about you know contrasting your approach. You were talking about the right to free speech and have an opinion on, on some of these environments and campuses. It, it, people won't even let people talk and this is not about objectionable things but just you don't even have a right to your opinion or speak and i i i can even use violence to get you to you know stop showing your opinion like are we this seems to be completely counter to the approach that you had which actually had success which is why don't we have some discussions and get this stuff on the table and and hear what each other has to say
0: this is uh you know you talk about cancel culture yeah and um you know you we we saw we saw that display itself in Donald Trump's election during his campaign okay look he was uh, was running for president back in 2016 and there were 17 candidates including him on the republican ticket all right he won he did not beat the other 16 he demolished them he wiped them out. And how did he do it? We saw him. We watched the debates. He bullied them. He called yes. them names. He stalked Hillary around the stage. And nobody thought this man was going to win. They thought, you know, this guy is a buffoon, so forth and so on. You know, this guy is not presidential. They laughed at him, et cetera, et cetera. But through his canceling them, stomping on them, calling you know, him Little Marco, uh, insulting Carly Furina's face, You know, shouldn't have a presidential face and so forth and so on, uh, insulting Ted Cruz's wife or whatever he did. You know, he bullied and demolished these people. And lo and behold, guess what? He won. So what is that? What what kind of message does that send to people? Oh, well, maybe if I do that, I will succeed in what I want. That is part of it. Hmm. That is part of it. I'm not saying it's the right way to go. Yeah. I'm just I'm just giving you right. uh you know a contributing factor to why we're seeing so much of that today. Now look look at some of these congress people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of these other buffoons out there who are canceling people and and insulting people. We never had that before and yeah we we had disagreements in congress of course, okay? But not to that extent until we saw somebody show how much uh, they, they could do it and get the top position in the country, even the top position in the world, president of the United States. And he got that through through what he did, what, through bullying and all that kind of stuff, because he didn't improve the country any. So now other people think, you know, hey, I can rise into my political aspirations if I follow that that playbook. And that's what we're seeing. But guess what? That playbook did not succeed in his uh, second uh, election, did it? Yeah.
1: Well, it's also right. I I always say whatever whatever weapon you try to use will eventually be used against you, right? And right. so you the the intolerance. I think from the far left is the right has now sort of been mimicked on the on, on the far left.
0: And yes, it, it has. It, yes, it has. And it's just as bad. It's just it's just as bad on the left as it is, as it is on the right. Right. And I tell you something. You know, a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Nothing gets resolved without conversation, without talking about it, you know. And the, the most effective weapon to controversy that can obliterate racism, uh, disagreement, et cetera, et cetera, it's the most powerful weapon. Uh, it's also the least expensive weapon. It's free. It's called conversation. Yeah. It's called dialogue. We spend way too much time talking about the other person talking at the other person, and talking past the other person. We can resolve a lot more just spending a little bit of time talking with the other person. You know, when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. They may be disagreeing, but at least they're talking. It's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So we got to keep the conversation going.
1: Right. And there's also this evolving viewpoint that uh, I, I think everyone has to agree or that if you don't agree with my opinion, you're objectively wrong. Right, <laughs> and, that, and that's a very hard position to come to a common ground on, right? Like you're just wrong and we're not going to, we're not going to even listen to you because you're so wrong, right? I, I, if if I, I, I want your
0: opinion, <laughs> I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And this is, I read someone's analysis. I actually think it was Stanley McChrystal was talking about, I actually was talking about Martin Luther King and was saying that he understood that actually the only thing that works is to try to build a bigger tent and to bring more people in. And he sort of went after the people in the middle who he felt like were reasonable. And, and, you know, there was positions that how could they disagree with some of these universal principles and and that the bigger tent is the only thing historically that's worked. But I think now everyone's trying to just pitch a little tent and, and, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and throw everyone out well, you know
0: the other side what you do is you you uplift the middle right when, when things are polarized you uplift the middle and when you build the middle it creates kind of a vacuum common humanity principles like right. Right? it will suck the left and right into it yeah because they become obscured so they will eventually be pulled into the middle yeah
1: it's interesting I, I think the majority is in the middle but we just hear from the the ten percent sides ninety percent right. of the time, you know, right. each day, and and I don't think the people in the middle feel very well represented
0: at all in that. No, because the people in the middle don't don't get the ratings on the on the news shows. <laughs> yeah, it's those fringe people who get the ratings or who cause the ratings to go up on either side.
1: So, do you think in terms of campuses and schools and that that you know? changing the approach of, you know, I, I always think sometimes when you try to cancel a speaker, it gives them more attention versus them speaking to an empty crowd, <laughs> you know, and yeah. there and bringing the attention or saying, look, you want to go to listen to that person, spew that stuff, go
0: ahead. Like uh, that's, you know, what is your thought on sort of, well, my, my thought on that is this, the reason why, well, one of the reasons I've been canceled before. Okay. Yeah. You know, at least two, maybe three times a year. But no, but no less than two times a year, disinvited to something. Yes, yeah, um, because uh, the student activities board, uh, student council, or whatever, at a college or university, uh, you know, they're responsible for bringing in speakers and bands and entertainment or whatever. This so, I'm here, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so they will uh, they will contact my um, my agent or whatever or me and uh, and set up a date, you know, for me to come and speak to the student body. And in some cases, I have a former uh, Klansman or a former neo-Nazi who's now, you know, working very hard to de-radicalize others within the movement or prevent young people from joining these movements. Uh, you know, they've been out for a number of years and they, they know the workings and they're, you know, they're, they're reformed. Um, sometimes I have those people come out with me and speak. Yeah. And it's very effective because you get my point of view, you get their point of view. And I, now I'm fascinated for who 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 wants it canceled
1: with the left or the right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so um, and so sometimes, you know, um, they, they'll have us booked. And then, you know, three weeks before the uh, the uh, school administration, the university administration. So, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have them on campus. It'll just stir up too much controversy. There'll be riots. There'll be whatever, you know, and see, this is the problem. Because these are institutions of higher learning. This is supposed right? to be debate and dialogue, right? Exactly. This is yeah. and, and think of it as is, is this. While you're on the campus, yeah, you know, you're safe and secure, everybody's probably treated equally and things like that. But when you leave the uh, the perimeter of the school, this is what's in the real world. And you have to learn how to, how to navigate it. The reason why you go to an institution of higher learning is so that you can better navigate society when you graduate. Well, these things are in society. There is sexism in society. There's is anti-Semitism. There is racism. There's homophobia. There's difficult all kinds discussions. Of yeah. Yes. Okay. So, you know, you, you know, if you're gay, if you're black, if you're, you know, uh, a girl or whatever, you all are going to be treated equally on the campus. But when you go beyond the walls of the campus, it may not be that way. And so you need to learn what is out there and how to deal with it, and who better to learn it from than people who are in the trenches. If somebody's majoring in, um, in IT, uh, information technology, you bring in a speaker on that who's in the trenches and tell you what kind of jobs you should go after, what you need to learn, how, how you pursue that uh, career when you graduate, because you're trying to, to get them to navigate society better, and have a better job, et cetera. Well, same thing. Uh, you know, Females, when they, when they leave school and they get a job, eventually some of them are going to be sexually harassed on the job by their boss or whoever, a male employee, whatever. How do they deal with that? Well, that's right. not something they ever learned in school, was it? How do I deal when I get discriminated against? You know, you're told to go to school, get the best grades you can get so you can get the best job you can get. But then when you graduate, you find out you're not being hired or you're not being paid the same because you're a female or because you're black or because you're gay. We weren't taught how to deal with that in school. That's right. what school is for, to teach us how to navigate society. So they cancel us. So I, I commend universities and schools like my high school that brought in that Nazi speaker. Not that I commended him by any means. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was a, he was a piece of trash as far as I'm concerned. But I'm glad he was there so I could see what was out there and what had to be done about it.
1: Yeah. And rather than physically threatening him and trying to be up his car, by the way, it always, yeah. when you try to ruin people's life, it comes full circle, right? Yeah. And yep. all, all yep. these people that are thrown off, they go on Tucker Carlson. Then people go after those people and it just becomes this, you know, doom loop. It's a cycle. Um, yeah. Just say, Hey, this person's got a real hateful message. If you want to go see what an idiot they sound like, you know, right. go ahead. Um, but, but you know, some I read the some author brought up the point recently where, you know, it used to be on the campuses, again, and you think about academic, that you'd put out a perspective, like similar to your discussion with the Klansmen early on, and then someone else would compare and contrast that with their own facts or data and say, well, mm-hmm. I disagree with Daryl, and here's mm-hmm. why. Now mm-hmm. the approach is Daryl doesn't have a right to say that, or Daryl should retract <laughs> what he says, right. <laughs> r- right, rather than an opposing opinion. It's kind of weird because I feel like the purpose of these institutions is to educate and debate and hear perspective and and I don't know. I think a lot of these administrators are not doing their job in that case where you're saying they're worried about violence or otherwise and says, look, if you get violent over speaker that's coming to campus, like you're out of thrown out of school. Like that's not part of our code of conduct. Like we don't right. we don't beat up people who who are speaking. Like that's not. I, I don't know. I think it's a very wimpy response in in some cases to again what is what is the code of conduct or behavior for the for the university of how they expect their students to behave and be
0: respectful because because you know i mean i i agree with you 100 and but they are of the line of thinking if anything negative happens on their campus yeah. a riot a shooting you know just think about um yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh you know the the person who went to virginia tech and shot up the place yeah you know then parents are Oh, my, my kid is graduating. You know, we were thinking about Virginia tech. No, I'm not sending him there. He might get killed. You know, it's a one-off incident, but the school is tainted forever in their mind. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a place, you know, you don't want to go. Like, for example, if um, you know you have a mall near your house or, or a grocery store near your house, and you've been shopping there for 20 years, and there's never been any, any incident there, and then uh, one day, you know, some crazed person is in there and shoots and, and kills five people in, in that grocery store or in, or in that mall, you and your neighbors will still go there because you realize, hey, that's a one-off. But surrounding areas will not go there. Oh, no, I'm not going over there, man. People get killed over there. You know, I'm not going to Chicago. That's, that's the murder capital of the right. world. You know, these kind of things are like one-offs. But for people in the periphery, they, they exacerbate it. But when you live there, you know, it's a one-off. Some guy from out of town came here and did this. This is not normal behavior. I will still shop there.
1: Yeah. Well, the schools are stuck in between, you know, some of them have become more of a customer service mindset versus, you know, an organizational mindset of, again, I, I think of a company. Like, we have values and we have behaviors and here's how we expect people to behave and what's okay to do and not to do. But I think some are probably afraid to say that. But also, I understand in these cases, the, Right, there's a, the one percent uh, risk, but it's, what
0: is it that uh, what is it that Upton Sinclair said? I think he said something to the effect of sometimes a um, a man's salary depends upon what he doesn't understand. <laughs> now, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, that's, so that's why he keeps silent. It's <laughs> a fair quote.
1: Well, we we could go on forever, uh, but uh, let let's. It's a question I always like to ask to, to wrap it up. I say it's, it's multivariant because it could be singular or, or repeated or professional or, or personal. But what's a mystique that you've made that you've learned the most from?
0: Um, Probably believing that people cannot change would be one of them. Uh, I've proven that people can change. I never set out to change anybody. But when I saw it happen before my eyes and then it happened again and again, I thought, you know what? I'm on to something. That's why I'm still doing this today because, you know, I wrote my book. I got my information. I didn't need to stay in contact with those people, but I'm doing it because I saw that change. I never went in with with the thought of converting anybody. They are who they are. They have their stripes or their spots. That's who they are. They'll never change. I just want to know why you hate me. That's all. And then we're done. I'll never see you again. And now some of these people are some of my best friends. Change. we go out we hear bands together we go out to dinner together these are know. former clan leaders yeah, yeah yeah and you know I, I had some at my wedding
1: you actually just made me think of a question i didn't ask before so a bonus but what was the reaction to the book both within the clan and outside the clan
0: uh the clan liked it actually yeah. yeah um i got a lot of a lot of support on it there were some people who were um Detractors, like, you know, you know, this is the wrong approach. You know, you, you don't go and sit down with the enemy. You yeah. know, you, 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 you're giving them a platform and on and on. You know, you're always going to have your detractors, of course. You know, but my question is this to my detractors. I've got over 200 people to leave that ideology behind. I've got, you know, uh, 60, 70 Klan robes and hoods and swastika flags given to me by people who used to use these actively. What do, what do you have yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah what do you have you know and then they shut up
1: that that yeah that's a big data argument uh that that well look your, your story's fascinating Daryl wh- where can people learn more about you music work
0: where where can they go they can go to uh daryldavis.com and Daryl is spelled d a r y l only one R, daryldavis.com
1: all right, Dale, th- thank you for, uh, for joining me and, and sharing your story. I think it's a huge inspiration, a model that people can learn from in a, in a world today
0: that feels sometimes you know more divided than ever. Well, Robert, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for listening. And I hope so, some, at some point you'll have me back again.
1: Uh, We definitely will. So thank you for joining us uh, today on the Elevate Podcast. Uh, You can learn more about Daryl and his work on the episode page at robertglazer.com, and we'll include a link to his website. If you enjoyed today's episode, the Elevate Podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover uh, amazing guests such as Daryl. So thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevated.